He was the 15th of 17 children. He only ever had two years of formal education. His father never liked him. And his brother physically beat him. At the age of 17, he found himself on his own in complete poverty, not knowing where his next meal was going to be coming from. And yet, he went on to become one of the greatest American inventors ever. A politician, a diplomat, a writer, prolific writer, and what we would typically refer to as one of our founding fathers. His name was Benjamin Franklin. We love stories of overcoming the odds, of persevering until we see victory. We just don't love them when they involve us. I can hear an inspiring story of somebody else overcoming odds all day long. I just don't want me to be in it. People say to me sometimes, boy, that was an exciting game that your team was playing in and you pulled it out at the last minute. Wasn't that fun? And it's like, no, give me a good old fashioned 56 to nothing game that has the other team quitting in the middle of the third quarter. I don't like the tension. I don't want to have to overcome anything. I don't want to have a big first quarter deficit to have to overcome and fight back and pull it out in the last minute. I want it to be a complete devastating blow to the enemy. Those are the stories that I love. It seems that in working with people for the past three decades, it it seems to me that We've arrived at a place where many times when we are facing a very difficult situation, instead of striving and persevering and working our way through to achieve victory, our tendency is more along the lines of just give up. We see so many people today walking away from relationships, walking away from commitments, walking away from church, because they've reached a point that they don't know what to do, and instead of pushing through and persevering, we've become a bit of a throwaway society. We don't repair things anymore. We scrap them and we start over again. And yet, we serve a sovereign God who we are told is absolutely in control of our lives, and even when we find ourselves in a very difficult situation, Scripture teaches that God is supposed to be in the midst of that. And that sometimes he even allows us to face challenges that are painful for our own good and ultimately for his glory. When the Christian and Missionary Alliance first went into the country of Ecuador, The gospel was presented to people who had never heard it before. But initially, there was no fruit. A decade went by without one conversion in Ecuador. And then two decades. And then three. 
Conversations were being had at the national office of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which at that point was in Nyack, New York. How long can we continue to invest our missionaries and our finances and our resources in a country that is bearing no fruit from the preaching of the gospel? A fourth decade passed. And just as leadership was beginning to contemplate how we would withdraw our workers out of Ecuador In the northern part of the country, in Otavalo, a conversion took place. Then two, then four, then ten, then a hundred, then a thousand. And revival swept the area. A few years ago, the Christian Missionary Alliance pulled out of Ecuador. Not because there wasn't fruit, but because the national church in Ecuador was so strong and self-sustaining, we no longer needed to have our international workers there. And we redeployed them to countries like Uruguay where there was not a strong national church and where the gospel had not been well received. God wrote a tremendous story and it's a great story to tell. But you have to ask yourself if you would have been one of those international workers maybe 30 years in with no stories of professions of faith. Would you have looked forward to coming home on home assignment to go from one church to the other sharing that message? Give us an update on how things are going. Well, it's pretty much the way it was 10 years ago. We love stories of overcoming and persevering, but it's hard when that story involves us. So just how are we supposed to respond when we find ourselves in one of those situations? When we're dealing with something, perhaps in our family, perhaps with our own health, perhaps in our employment, perhaps in our church, how are we supposed to respond when we find ourselves in a situation where it's just seemingly impenetrable? If you have your Bible or your device this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 6? I want to read a portion of scripture for you this morning, beginning in verse 1 of the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, no one went out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. The nation of Israel is up against it. They have come to a fortified city. This is the beginning of Joshua's story of his leadership. They have Come to Jericho, and Jericho is a monstrous fortress of a city. How are they supposed to conquer? How are they supposed to achieve victory? Well, the first thing in the story that I want you to see begins with God's instructions. 
In verse 3, God gave Joshua specific instructions for how to deal with the challenging situation that was in front of them. This is what he told them to do. March around the walls of Jericho once every day for six days, but on the seventh day, walk around seven times. Thirteen marches around the city of Jericho. These are God's instructions to his people. Can I tell you something? If I'm an Israelite, this makes no sense to me at all. I'm supposed to do what, Lord? This is what? Do you want us to all have a hand grenade or some dynamite in one of our pockets and at the right time throw them over the, over the fence? No, there's no mention of that. Do you want us to secretly have our soldiers scale the wall and attack at the given moment? No. No, I want you to march around the city 13 times over the span of seven days. And to make matters worse, if you pay attention to the passage we read, it's really not even primarily a military battle. This is not a military march. This march is more focused on the musicians. Now, I said this at the first service, and it didn't seem to get me in trouble, so I'm going to say it again. When I think of going to battle, I don't think of musicians. My wife's a musician. I have very little musical ability. My wife's a musician. I might get in trouble when I get home for saying this, but I think of musicians as people that I would go fishing with, pick flowers with, go to an art museum with. You know, musicians are gentle souls. They're, they're gentle spirits. But they're not Rambo. I don't want to go into war with a bunch of musicians. I want trained soldiers to be with me if I'm facing an inconquerable foe. But God's instructions had more to do with trumpets than with spears or bows and arrows. It's strange, isn't it? Sometimes the instructions that God gives us don't always seem to add up. And especially in light of what Jericho was like. Now, when we picture stories in Sunday school classes and vacation Bible school about the walls of Jericho, I remember as a kid, they were pretty much just straight up. It was just, it looked like a little box that someone had set down, but, you know, hard wall. But really, most scholars say that the walls of Jericho were actually a retaining wall of about 13 to 15 feet high and about 3 to 5 feet thick. But then next to them was an area of sloped gravel or dirt that ramped up to another wall, which was typically 25 to 30 feet high. Now, if you stood back from that and looked at it, it came to a wall that probably was about 40 feet high in total. And it was so thick that the houses could actually be built into the wall. It was possible for your house to be a part of the wall so that your back porch window opened up and you could look right down the wall. Which is why people were sometimes able to be lowered out of a window over the wall of a city and be able to escape. This was not a job for musicians. This was a job for trained soldiers. 
And yet God's instructions are clear. Does that sound crazy to you? Just march around that thing 13 times and victory will come. Now we have the benefit of history on our side and we can look back and see how it all worked out. But if I'm in the midst of this story, I got to tell you, this just seems upside down to me. If it seems upside down to you, welcome to God's world. Because the same God that told his people to march around Jericho 13 times has said some other things that don't really add up. Here are a few of them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who oppress you. Care for the poor and the destitute. Put others' needs before your own. Lay down your life for your friends. Bless those who persecute you. Be patient in affliction and never repay evil. For evil, we could go on. None of those make sense to the natural mind, and yet they are all very clearly God's instructions. So when it comes to God's instructions, the first lesson that I need to learn is, I cannot become the filter that determines what makes sense and what doesn't. If I'm going to be obedient to God, I cannot stand up and go, I will obey you, God. Everything you tell me that makes sense to me, I will do. But if it doesn't make sense to me, I reserve the right not to. It can't work that way. Because most of God's instructions don't make sense to my natural mind. There's a second thing that we need to learn in this passage. And that is, there's a key to how we respond to that impenetrable situation. When you are up against it and you don't see a solution and you don't know how you're going to go on. There seems to be a key that's revealed in the passage. In verse 6, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And had seven priests carry trumpets in front of them. And then he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard, going ahead of the ark of the Lord. The ark seems to be the key to this endeavor. This 13 marches around the city. The ark seems to play even a more prominent role than the trumpets. Definitely a more prominent role than the soldiers. You see, for Israel, the ark of the covenant represented the presence of God. It was a two by two by four wood box covered with gold. And it was so sacred because it stood for the presence of Almighty God. And when the Israelites saw the ark, they knew that God was with them. He displayed his presence that way. And so God is sending a very clear message to the Israelites. My visible manifestation of my presence is what needs to be driving you. It needs to be out in front of you. And so the lesson becomes when I don't know what to do, when I don't understand what God is telling me, the one thing that I can rely on is the presence of God. To put that ark out in front was symbolic and significant. It demonstrated that the most important thing for people was not their wisdom or their understanding, but God's presence. That's what mattered more than anything else. March around that city, but God, it doesn't make sense. It's okay, I'll be with you. It doesn't have to always make sense as long as God is in it. It doesn't always have to add up to my mind. It doesn't always have to be comfortable or convenient for me as long as God is in it. 
when you find yourself in a tough tough situation, before you reach for your own understanding, reach for the presence of God because that's what you need. Ah, but there's something we also need to know about that. If you haven't been cultivating the presence of God in your life, when you reach a point when you are up against a difficult situation, it will be extremely challenging for you. No one wakes up one morning and says, without ever having run ever before, today I'm going to run in the New York City Marathon. It just doesn't work that way. You run a little bit, and then you run a little bit more, and then you run a little bit more. And then eventually you work your way up to the point where you are physically able to run 26 plus miles in a marathon. We cultivate the presence of God, not in the midst of a crisis, but before the crisis. We pray before the crisis, not just when we get into the crisis. When I was a kid growing up in church, I was always told, read your Bible and pray every day. It was a discipline that I, I definitely got that lesson. What, what people didn't explain to me was why. Why is it so important that I do that? And it took way too long before I finally learned that the answer to the question was so that you will be ready to handle the things that are going to come your way. There are going to be temptations and there are going to be challenges and there are going to be moments in time when you may be tempted to doubt what truth really is. But if you've been cultivating the presence of God in your life, when you come to that moment in time, you're going to be familiar with God's voice. The author Alexander McLaren wrote, Peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. But if you don't cultivate it, if you don't spend time in the Word, if you don't spend time in prayer, if you don't spend time in community, when that day comes, you are not going to be able to reach for it. It will be like reaching for your marathon shoes that you've never used before. This is why we get in the word. This is why we pray. This is why we encourage one another. So that when God's instructions come and they're not making sense to us, we can say, I don't understand, but I know the voice of God. And I know that it's his voice that's telling me to do this. When I was a kid, I remember very clearly my grandparents celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary with a special event in our church fellowship hall. It was a gathering of all of the church people, but also a lot of people from the community came. And I just remember that that little room was packed with people all day long. People were coming. And it was because my grandfather, who had been retired at that point, was a a handyman. He was a carpenter. He could create or fix anything. And he had been in every one of those homes, doing repair work, building things, creating things, helping people. Anytime they had a crisis, he was there. I have clear memories as a kid of going to the hospital on Sunday afternoons with my grandparents to visit people. He wasn't a minister. He wasn't even an elder at that point. But they would spend their Sunday afternoons visiting the two hospitals in the community where they lived. That if anyone in the church was ill, they would make a point of stopping to see them. I remember sometimes I wasn't even old enough to go upstairs to the actual hospital room and I would sit there going, boy, I can't wait till someday I am old enough to be able to visit people in the hospital, never realizing that one day I'd do it for a living. 
the fun wore off. After a while, by the way, in case you're curious. A couple months later, another couple in the church celebrated their 50th anniversary. A wonderful couple. But a couple that kept to themselves, didn't really attend all of the services of church as, as consistently, and didn't have the relationships with the people in the church and the community that my grandparents did. They had their anniversary celebration in the exact same room at the church that my grandparents had, but attendance was like one-tenth of what it had been for the first gathering. And at first I was confused, and then I realized they were not invested in the community the way my grandparents had been. They hadn't done the things that developed the relationships so that when the celebration came, the people weren't as inclined to attend. When we fail to cultivate the presence of God in our regular daily existence, when we come to a moment in time when we are really in a difficult situation, we may not always be ready for it. And it will appear at times to even be overwhelming. There's a third aspect of the story, and it's the, it's the fun one that we get to come to. It's the victorious end. God said to the Israelites, march around Jericho 13 times in seven days. And he gave them his presence in the form of the Ark of the Covenant to lead that parade. But we come to verse 20 of chapter 6, and this is what we read. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. This is the victory part that we like. This is that moment in time when we see God break through and do something that I doubt any of them were fully prepared for. As they're marching around the city, they might have pictured one or another different narratives, but I wonder, did they really picture that the walls all by themselves would come down? The Israelites obeyed God and the walls fell. It is very important to note that it was not Joshua, even though he's famed in song and story for fighting the battle of Jericho, it was not Joshua that brought those walls down. It was not the warriors, the army that brought them down. It wasn't even the musicians that brought them down. God brought the walls down. It wasn't anyone or anything other than God that brought the victory. It's his victory. It is not ours. When facing an impossible situation and the odds are stacked against you and you don't know what God is trying to communicate to you and it doesn't seem to make sense to you, it's important to know that your victory does not come from you or your courage or your understanding. It comes from God. Victory is often pointed to in inappropriate places, even by believers. I've heard people say, oh, you're struggling? What you really need is this seminar or this book or this conference. You need a whole different philosophy of ministry. Your church struggling? It's because you don't have this program. Your nation struggling? You need a new political party. You need a new leader. You need new Supreme Court justices. Your denomination struggling? Elect a new leader. That will solve the problem. It is God 
who gives the victory. He is our hope. None of these things are necessarily misplaced, but he is our hope. But there's another issue that we have to address about God's victory, and that is God's timing. God doesn't always arrive when my watch says he should. He doesn't always come in the moment that if I were writing the story, he would come. Sometimes he doesn't seem to arrive in time. I think of the story of Lazarus. Jesus knew about Lazarus. He obviously knew that Lazarus was sick and Lazarus had died. And he could have spared Mary and Martha four days of mourning and grieving the death of their brother, but he chose not to. And then he came to Bethany and he raised Lazarus from the dead with a command. But he didn't do it the way that Mary and Martha might have wanted him to do it. God's timing is his own. And though we long to see him bring victory and deliverance and overcoming the difficult situation, we must always understand God comes in his own time and in his own way. He doesn't do it the way I want him to. He does it the way he wants him to. And that's a good thing. But if there's a single point that causes us to doubt sometimes, it's when we ask ourselves, where's God in this? Why hasn't he swung in and rescued me? Why am I continuing to struggle with this problem or this illness or this issue? Why is it so painful? Why is it so hard? The answer lies in the mystery of God's sovereignty. I virtually eat the same thing for breakfast every morning. Two scrambled eggs, three slices of bacon. That's my routine. I do it if I'm at home and everything is as it should be. That's my routine. But there's another routine in our family. And that routine is that as I get my breakfast prepared and sit down to eat it, Journey, my dog, about a 10-pound Yorkie terrier, finds herself sitting at my feet looking at me with those big eyes saying, Where's my bite? When I sit down with my eggs and bacon, I eat the first bite myself. I eat the second bite myself. Now you're saying to yourself, how selfish is he that he won't give the first bite to his dog? She is looking at you with those puppy dog eyes. That's okay. Journey's thinking the same thing. The answer is because when I first sit down, my eggs are too hot for her to eat. And if I were to give her the first bite, it would potentially burn her mouth. So I wait until the eggs have had a moment or two to cool down. And then I take a pinch of egg in my finger and make sure that it's not too hot. And then I give it to her. And the reason for the delay is not because I hate her. It's because I love her. And I don't want her to suffer. And I knew all along that that bite of egg was coming. But she didn't. Because she's a dog. And she forgets, I believe, she forgets from one day to the next. And I think there's a little bit of panic sometimes that goes through her mind. It's not going to happen today. Even though it has happened the last 400 days, it's not going to happen today. It's going to happen. Can you believe that there are times when a loving Heavenly Father doesn't come through for you at that moment that you wished he would, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. 
That the reason you have not seen your prayer answered, the reason you haven't seen your miraculous moment is not because God isn't there, but because he is there and because he loves you so much. He knows exactly when the right time is for your walls to come down. God gave instructions. God gave his presence. And God gave victory. But we conclude with us. Because the reality is that while these make for great stories, we're in the middle of our stories. We can look back on Joshua 6 and say, this is what it was in the past. But for you, you're living your Jericho perhaps today. Perhaps today you are staring at a 40 foot high wall and you're going, there is no way. You can't even write a story in your head of how God's going to deliver you. After 13 marches, the walls came down. But what if you were on March 12? You've done everything that God has asked you to do. You've been obedient and you love him. But it's been 12 marches, nothing. No cracks. No walls falling. Nothing. March 12 is a dangerous place to be. Perhaps that's where you are today. God, where are you? I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm being obedient to you, but I haven't seen it yet. Can I just tell you, March 13th is coming, and it's going to be spectacular, and God is going to be faithful, and he is going to do what he promised he would do. Can you trust him even though right now you don't see it? This is why we pray. This is where faith comes into our story. Can I believe that God is going to do what he's going to do, even though right now the walls are still standing? Because if I'm on March 12 around Jericho, man, I'm starting to grumble and I'm starting to complain and I'm starting to doubt and I'm starting to say, oh, this couldn't have been right. Somehow we got this wrong. But they weren't wrong. They were exactly where God wanted them to be, doing exactly what he wanted them to do. It was simply a matter of time. I read a story a number of years ago about a Vietnamese gentleman back in 1971 who was doing work with the Alliance, working with our international workers who were serving the Lord in Vietnam at the time. He would do translation work. He worked for... Some of our international workers, he worked with evangelists that would come through Vietnam, translating for them as they preached. During the course of that work as a translator, he became a believer, placed his faith in Christ. But several years later, when Vietnam fell to the communists because of his association with Americans, he was arrested and he was thrown into a prison camp, savagely beaten, separated from his family, And the job that he was given to do in the prison camp was one of the worst jobs that anyone in a prison camp could ever have to do. His assignment was to clean the latrines. He wrote in his story that one day as he was contemplating all the things that had gone on in his life, he started to have doubts. Perhaps these American Christians had lied to me. During the time of his imprisonment, the communists had made sure that they only fed him communist propaganda. And he was beginning to crack. He was beginning to doubt. 
Perhaps none of this Christianity thing is true. Perhaps I've been mistaken. Where is God in all of this? How could a loving God allow me to spend this time in the prison camp and go through what I've gone through? And one day as he was working in the latrine, working with a a basket that had paper in it that was being used as toilet paper, something caught his eye because it looked like English. And he picked it up gently out of the can because it had human waste on it. And he cleaned it and looked at it. And it was a page from a New Testament. The communists were using the word of God as toilet paper. As he looked at that piece of paper, a verse caught his eye. And we know that in all things, God is at work for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He took that piece of New Testament, cleaned it as best he could, folded it, put it in his pocket, took it home with him and read it that night. The next day he went to the commander of the prison camp and volunteered to continue to clean the latrines. Can you imagine the look on his face when someone came and volunteered? Sure enough, that's what they were doing with a Bible that they had ripped the pages out of. And over a period of time, he was able to collect almost all the pages of the book of Romans. And back in his cell, he got on his knees and he confessed his doubts and his lack of faith. And he rededicated his life to Christ. And he continued to walk with Christ until one day he was freed from that prison. He came to America and he told his story. In the midst of the lowest moment where the doubts were very powerful, he was at one moment on his 12th march and it looked bleak. But then March 13th came and God demonstrated that he was present with him even in that horrible situation. And his faith was restored. How about you today? I don't know your story, but I know that if you're there, if you're facing your Jericho today, and all you've heard from the Lord are instructions that don't seem to be getting the job done, don't quit. At the end of the passage, we read these words. So the Lord was with Joshua, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua. Can we ask for anything more than that? That though what we're dealing with may be hard and painful and bleak. Jesus, if you go with me, I can face it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, perhaps there's someone in this room today, far more than I would ever be able to understand, who is facing their Jericho. And they love you with all their heart and they have committed themselves to you. But it's getting late. And they haven't seen a breakthrough yet. And perhaps a spirit of despair or a discouragement has set on them. My prayer today is that through your word and your spirit, you would speak to that individual and encourage them. You don't promise that everything's going to work out okay. You promise that no matter what happens, your presence will be adequate for us to handle it. 
teach us once again that it is safe to trust you and that it is right to love you. And we will glorify you with lives that do not walk away, do not quit, but continue to trust. In Jesus' name, amen.